0: I actually started off doing astrophysics,
1: so you, you do know much about astrophysics.
0: No, tell me more. How did? What is that? How did you get into that?
1: So everyone thinks like astrophysics. When I when I so I so I went so I decided to go to Leeds, got into Leeds Uni, not bad, not a bad university of physics, and I was like, right, I'm going to do astrophysics because I like enjoyed stars and and space and all that shit, and I. Um, was doing it for a year and I was like, this is the dry shit going. Do, do you know, like, astrophysics isn't... The interesting shit's cosmology. So, you know, you know, when you think of astrophysics, you probably think of Einstein, Kepler, you probably think of um Hubbard, all these people, like age of the universe, the expansion of the universe. When you think of astrophysics, it's not that. It's like the live, si- live sequence of a star. It's like when a star is born, what is the sequence it goes through its life before it dies? That's seriously tedious stuff.
0: Really? Why did you? What makes you decide to do that
1: instead of all the other options? So there, were, so it leads. There were three options you could do un, for undergrad, and because I knew I didn't have the grades for um, for a master straight away, I had to go straight to BSc. But I knew, I was like, if I do well first year, I can get straight into an MSc, it's easy. Like you just do well first year, pull the weight and then you just switch over. So I, um, so yeah, so I started off with astrophysics. Within the first year I was like, this is boring. This is seriously tedious stuff. So in the second year I switched over to straight physics, like just pure physics, got rid of the astro modules cause they were just like really, really boring things about stars, like pulsating stars. That's seriously dry stuff when you get to it. It genuinely is. You're looking at like graphs of how the luminosity luminosity of a star changes over months. It's it's just seriously tedious stuff.
0: What are the options? Run me through the options. Oh, so the like... options
1: were astrophysics, straight physics, and then theoretical physics, if I remember mm. correctly. I did never did theoretical because I was like, I want some real world application. But also I was like, theoretical it's hardcore. What would you be doing in that? That's yeah. like pure maths. Like my brother, my little brother, he's he did a masters in theoretical physics. I actually proofread his masters for him, um, and I didn't know a fucking word he was saying. <laughs> Honestly, I was reading through. I re- this was when I was third year PhD, and I was reading through my bro, my little brother's master's thesis, and I was, and I was like. I can't even do this maths. I was, I was literally, I was like, I can, I can grammar check for you, and I can make sure the the words make sense and in the science way. But I was like, I can't do the maths for you because this is beyond my maths. Yeah, it's serious heavy maths. It's like pure, pure heavy. I mean, some of the best scientists in the world, like Hawking's, uh, Penrose. These are all theoretical physicists. You know, these are the freaking smartest guys. The, the pure mathematicians, in a sense, they just apply it to space. Um, is the way I see it. So I I, when I was 18 decided I was going to do astrophysics and then within the second year I dropped off that and went to straight physics changed to a master's as well and then I did a year abroad in um Canada and then I kind of took a bit of a hiatus because I just was like enjoying life I did study hard and I got a good grade but physics wasn't my priority then it really wasn't um but then when i came back i actually won a summer research placement a paid research placement with leeds so f- when i came back from canada i spent the whole summer after that researching um, with the but i did it with the condensed matter group so condensed do you know much about condensed no, matter no please tell me so condensed matter physics is very like um, thin film magnetism so it's like it's like semiconductors is thin film is is condensed matter physics
0: say say in um in a way like in layman terms because a lot of the viewers will be like
1: so condensed matter physics basically is in physics it's the study of solid materials in a sense but so you've got uh soft matter physics which is like polymers um things like i think dna is an example of soft matter physics um and then you've got condensed matter theoretical Condensed matter is is what so you know what runs your computer like the, the chips that run your computer, they fall under condensed matter physics. How, how the physics, how a PN junction works, how a diode works, all of these things like diodes, transistors, things like that. That's all condensed matter physics. And the group I was in specialized in magnetism and magnetism and superconductivity. So I did a master. I did this. I did this um, summer research pl- placement working on um, solar cells. I'm making solar cells because they're condensed matter physics. And then I was like, this is my jam. I was like, this is interesting stuff. I want to join these guys. And I got a master's, uh, project with them. Um, and then that's that. So that's the, one of the penultimate steps. And then I, um, Enjoyed my master. So my master's thesis was about superconductors and ferromagnets. So magnetism combined with superconductors, but in these little layers that are um, a millionth the thickness of a human hair. Like when you do things like that, when you take it to that quantum level, you start getting weird behaviors. You start getting weird behaviors. Um, and so I enjoyed my master's so much. And then I found this PhD with uh, a very new young academic in Liverpool. And so, it is quantum, but it's not... Everyone envisages quantum now as, say, quantum computers. As, say... I mean, quantum computers is the biggest one. But it's not on that level. It is on the quantum level, agreed. But it's not in the um, trendy, trendy, cool way that people see it now. Like, the physics I do, I've done, is very much the physics for nerds because they like physics. It's not the physics for nerds because they've found a hot trendy thing as well. Hmm. So like the stuff of my the stuff I've done is kind of like the dull stuff. Can so. you explain it in a couple of words what your PhD was about? So uh superconductors, you're you familiar with them? But I will go through them again. A superconductor is a material that can carry a current. Like the like the wires in this like the the copper wires in here carry a current that transmits the signal, um, but they have a they have a resistance. So you put too much current through them, you'll get high voltage. You'll get high resistance. They'll well, sorry the resistance might be constant, but they'll warm up. Superconductors, you can a current can run through them, but with zero resistance. So that's super like important for I th- the the re- this is fundamental for the future of energy saving things because if you can pass a current through something without it being resistive, like when you put a high current through a wire, it'll get to a threshold where it melts itself because there's so much resistance that it will get too hot and melt. Mm. With superconductors, that won't happen because there's no resistance.
0: So you're looking at um, like efficiencies beyond our
1: comprehension. Well, this thing, so when you, your laptop down there, When you've watched Netflix in your bed on a Sunday night for a few hours, you know, on a a hangover or whatever, your legs get nice and toasty. That's because your computer is running so many calculations. There's so much current flowing through. It's getting warm. Well, that's all that's happened with that heat is it's warmed your legs up. It's such a waste of energy. And there are 2 billion computers in the world. Like think of all those warm legs and all those warm rooms. Just to do what? Just to perform a calculation. So the point of super trying to inter, in, in, integrate and assimilate, uh, superconductors into like the, the, the point of no resist, having no resistance into modern technology is that you're going to save energy because, um, you can remove that resistive heating. But the issue is with current technology and current materials, you have to cool them down to like 10 Kelvin to like minus 265 degrees. So you waste so much energy doing that. So my PhD was looking at how to help bring superconductors into the into the forefront and try, you know, of modern technology. But we're still in such a fundamental point that we haven't got like really useful devices yet that could go into a computer because the big single problem with superconductors is they have to be cold they're not room temperature like the semiconductor chips in your computer so the original question you asked was quantum physics mm. yeah in a sense it is but quantum is is, is is as deep as it is broad so but it is quantum physics yeah it's on a nanoscale level agreed but why did i get into that i think it was just a i felt i you could say I fell into it but then you could also say the steps, my decisions from beginning of university to my, um, summer placement to my masters kind of led me into a, into a place where I enjoyed what I was doing. I think in in all honesty, in all honesty, my love has always been for, my love has always been for experimenting. Hmm. So, like with my masters it was just so experimental it was so like I was I my masters was mental I was in the lab especially in the crunch hours in the final weeks um, probably I was in the lab eight in the morning till nine at night like just getting it all done and I just fell in love with that I just loved doing that I was like on the equipment, getting the data, taking analyzing it. And I was actually, even in my masters, I managed to get involved in making some stuff. So then when I got an opportunity to do a PhD where I had to build the lab, build the equipment in the lab, I was just like, that's me. I was like, that's for me. I was like, I just want to make something from scratch. In, any, in all honesty, my PhD was, in terms of startups, it was a zero to one startup for research. Like I turned up, there was nothing there. I had to build all the equipment. Mm. I had to get the data from all the equipment and then I had to publish the data. So that's how I got that's into it. That's
0: pretty cool. So it's, it's in a way also like applied in the way that like you like applying end to end kind of, you start with nothing, you build the thing, you kind of validate your hypotheses and then you end up with doing research down the line. So you like the Oh, whole... that's exactly,
1: the, yeah, that's exactly, a, that's the perfect way of, of analog, and um, Of summarizing it, yeah, I, I think I just fell in love with making, with solving the problem, (laughs) because for us it was like when I started my PhD, it was like, we need a piece of kit that will take us down to minus two hundred and seventy-two degrees, and it has to fit in this space, and you can't have a normal helium liquefier. You need a contained system because we don't have the equipment to liquefy the helium again. All, these, all of these problems is like, it has to fit on a desktop. It has to, you have to be able to speak to it through a normal computer, all of these things. And it was just like, bam. Like I spent two years just doing that. And then now, now like that piece of equipment I've made will will run the group for the next 10 years, 15 years. Wow. So that was for me, In any, if anything, I think I'm probably more of a physics engineer. Mm -hmm. like but i did enjoy getting the data from it and i did enjoy analyzing the data but i think i in the point that you were saying of the um end-to-end like yeah it's like starting with absolutely nothing and also no money we had no money like i i had to genuinely first first few months of my phd i would made friends in the building and i would just go to the academics and i'd literally just be like oh. how, how we're doing today, John? Are you having a good day? Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I just make chat with them. Be like, oh, I've noticed you've got f you've got a spare computer in one of the other rooms. Like, did do, do you do you need do you need it? And they'd be like, No, it's been there for a few few years, actually. I'd be like, oh, could you do us a massive, massive favour and could you just like could you just lend it us for a few weeks? And if you need anything from us, like vacuum system system stuff, if you need some stuff for deposition, whatever, you can always ask us. And they'd always be like, Yeah, yeah. So literally our our lab is made from computers and and equipment that I've just scavenged by just charming it out of people. Uh, that, that is literally my entire PhD was just charming people stuff out of people. But obviously, like if they wanted something back, I'd always make do my best to give them give something back to them. Yeah. But that was that was my, I look that's the bit I love the most was just like chatting to people, getting stuff off them, making good friendships, and then like helping them out with stuff if they needed it as well.
0: Yeah, I feel like the. The scarcity um, at university makes you think extra hard, like in anything. If you're having a startup and you just have no money, you are thinking extra hard. You're more efficient. You're more not cunning, but like in a way uh, like genius about it and how you get your stuff like you're so precise with exactly what you need. And that—that's a different set of skills. Like, uh, we definitely—I've definitely had some stories. Like, I am—we're uh, in the robot intelligence lab at Imperial. We're—we're taking—we're going around the engineering department looking for nuts and bolts, yeah. looking for resistors. No, exactly. That's the like, same as me going to um, the robot uh, society
1: completely and being. like... <laughs> it's, no, it's the. But I think that's part of the fun. So I—I <laughs> the- managed to make friends with the electro-electronics lab. And then it, they had the best soldering kit, like going. So I would, I would, i made friends with the guys who run that, and I was like, I, and every, and they give me the code to the room in the end. So it had, I had those walls of components that they, I could just have, whereas we'd have had to buy that. Yeah. And it, obviously, it's not expensive stuff, but it's like when you're in that in that zero to one zone, it's like you like want to get it done now. That was my my issue as well as impatience. It's like I don't want to wait four days for components to arrive. I want to get this shit done now. Like I've, I've I want to make this Christ now. I'm I am getting somewhere with this. I don't want to stop the flow. So I made friends with electronics lab. They give me the code to the room, and they're like, you can use it whenever you want. I, I spent months in there just soldering stuff up, using their components. They had a big budget to prefer to them, but you know that's part of it is that not the hustle but it's just like making friendships and just and then when I was in there I'd chat with them we got for pints afterwards you know what I mean I wasn't even in their group but you know I would just like get I get involved went for drinks went for food with them and then it got to be like a real friendship and they give me the code to the room and they give me access to all of their stuff like if I even needed a power supply yeah okay well, as long as you bring it back Sometimes I wouldn't bring it back, but you know, it would be like, would be like I think, but you understand, like that's part, of, I think that's part of the fun. Personally, I found that part of the fun was like seeing how far you can get on nothing. Like I genuinely relished that, that endeavor, like seeing how, because we actually didn't have money in the coffers. Like our, our um, academic group had ran out of money. We had literally like a few thousand left. But when you're working on like d- deep tech research, you need tens and tens. So like the kit I built, if i we'd have bought it, it would have been like 80 grand, but I managed to make it for like 18. Like That's really cool. There's different levels to it. Like but that was the fun of it. Like I had to design it. I couldn't there was no outsourcing. Zero. I couldn't outsource anything. I had to design everything myself. The only thing I can I could outsource was the actual construction of say um a UHV welded implement, like say I needed something made bespoke that needed like special, special welds and things like that. Then we'd buy it that, but I would have to make the design for them. And that's, that's the, I just found that like, that's what led me onto entrepreneur at first, where we're both at. That's what led me to this. I was like, I've done in essence a zero to one, like startup but in research. So I was like, maybe I'll find fulfillment in do my own startup. Mm that makes a lot of sense
0: is that experience of um it's almost like convergence right there's nothing there's vac, vac- vacuum if you're talking about physics is vacuum of space and suddenly suddenly you create this out of nothing like the whole universe it, it's really cool the metaphorically um I, I think a lot of people spoke about the importance of finding the right team at university like what would you say to let's say younger physics guys getting into it about going into research try, trying applied physics like how would you um have you got any learnings about how to act or which institution to choose i think that navigate in that space
1: i think that's a i think that's a genuinely fantastic question because and i'll tell you why Drawing drawing from my own experience i was offered a phd at Durham University with a very, very distinguished academic um, part of the Royal Society, dell Atkinson. Very, very distinguished in my field. He offered me a PhD in Durham, which is a great uni.
0: Durham is like one of the top yeah. institutions in yeah. the UK.
1: I got offered one in Leeds that was, con- was joined with Oxford, a joint one the, between Leeds and Oxford as well. But I chose Liverpool, which isn't some, which is, a bit unintuitive. Like, oh, you've got, you got Durham, you've got Liverpool slash Oxford, Leeds slash Oxford, and then you've got Leeds. The re- Liverpool, the reason I went with Liverpool and, and disregarded the other two and said no to the other two, even though I was very honoured to have been offered those, was that the other two groups, so if this is just my experience, and, and I'm not saying everyone else will believe in this or agree with this, but for me... I wanted to, it depends what skill set you want to develop. So I, I realized that I wanted to develop a skill set where it was, I could solve any issue I needed to scientifically, but from scratch. In the sense of, had I gone to Durham, all the kit is ready for me to go. Everything's ready to go. I turn up and there's n- nothing against people who've gone to Durham like you, you turn up and you can turn the dials and you can get the data out and you can probably get m- way more papers than I achieved, but you've not had to start from scratch. Same with Leeds. Whereas I, w- I went to Liverpool because it was a very young academic, Liam o- Dr. Liam O'Brien. And I will say today, and I've said it many times, my decision to work with him at Liverpool is arguably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life ever. Uh, he was 33 when I joined. I think 33, 32, 34 between those ages. Young academic. He didn't. We, me, and Alex Wright, one of my closest ever friends, love that man. If you see this, Alex, I love you always. Um, me and him were the only two of his of his um, students. So two two PhD students, me and Alex and Liam, three of us, like an early stage startup. He Liam himself, his background is just insane. He was, at the age of 33, he was a lecturer at Cambridge. He'd already done a Marie Curie postdoc. He'd already, he did his undergrad and his master at Oxford. He did his PhD at Imperial. Like this guy's next, he did his po- first postdoc at uh, Cambridge and then did a Marie Curie. This guy's, he's he was, he's a prodigy. He's, he's seriously, seriously talented physicist. Read his background, went for an interview and he said straight up, he was like, if you join in a you're gonna to have to do everything from scratch. I've got no equipment, you're gonna to have to make it. And I was just like, bam, let's go. And as well, he was 33. It was just us three, me, Alex and him. And I was like, this dynamic's gonna be so different. Rather than joining a group that was like 20 people already. Do you know what I mean? Like one academic with 15 PhD students, five masters, whatever. I was like, nah, I want one-on-one I want one time. I want just to be in the mix that whole time I want it just to be dynamic. I was like, I want. I said to Liam from the beginning. I was like, if I join you, am I going to be able to make decisions where this group goes? Am I going to be help? Am I going to be able to help decide how we shape this group? He was like, absolutely. And he's true to his word. You know what I mean? Like, it was the three of us. It was the three amigos from the beginning. Like we shaped how the group is is now. He's got like eight people now. What is it called? What's
0: the group called?
1: The Liam O'Brien Group, obviously. Does <laughs> that have mean, a special name? Well, we're the um, magnetic group, but we're like it's, there's not like a special name for it to say. Right. It's just, but but yeah, it was like seriously. For me, I I just wanted something small. I wanted something intimate. I wanted to be it to be like kind of family, like where it was. I could go and see my supervisor. Where I needed to. I'd already in Leeds. I was I was part of a big academic group where there was like. 10 students to the to the PhD uh, to the supervisor and I was like I don't want that again And it's hard to get that because every supervisor that's become big they can't dedicate the time anymore they're never in the lab anymore whereas I knew that if I was the first generation PhD Lima would be there by side all the time and and you know what I was 100% right to make that decision for me like he would take us out for lunch every month. Like, everything, every milestone we achieved, he would take us out for lunch. It was so, because there's only three of us. Mm. So it's fine. But um, there are drawbacks, though, I will admit. there are the, the, the drawbacks, I think, that I've figured out, actually, in EF are that being from a very, very young um, academic group, the networking isn't as big. So, like, people in our cohort... They've come from very well-established academic groups where they can just call on alumni and be like, oh, someone who left five years ago. Oh yeah, Uh, oh, how's it going, Jim? Um, I've seen you doing this, can we have a chat? I don't have any of that. Because I'm part of a group that has existed. I was the first person, one of the first people in it. So there's no like people to fall back on so that that was a that was the that was a downside but it, I would say if you have the chance to join a new academic group with a young academic grab that by the balls because the level of experience you get is so different and obviously it depends on the person because I think I got super lucky as well because Liam is arguably the most, he's just one of the most personable and just genuine. He, his people skills are, I think, unparalleled. As in, I've never met anyone in academia like him, ever. As in, like if I had personal problems, I could talk to him, we we could go for a pint, like, I could chat with him about his family. Like you don't get that in physics very often. You really don't get that. It's just not, physicists have a stereotype of being unper- in- just not personable and being, you know, just awkward and weird. And the stereotype is for a reason. <laughs> like Paul Paul <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of them are like that. I mean, I've worked with hundreds of physicists. The vast majority are like that. They are. Obviously, there's a lot that aren't, but a lot are. Whereas Liam was just, uh, I owe a lot to him. Put it that way. And like, when I write, when I write my uh, acknowledgements,
0: I hope he sees it. I hope
1: uh, when I write my acknowledgements, he'll be getting. He's the first one. He's getting a big fat paragraph. I've already. I've actually already. Um, what do you call it? Um, planned it out. What I'm going to write to him. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah. Honestly, he's had such an important impact in my life. Um, I moved to Liverpool knowing no one. Um, and then working with him for four years, and it's just been such a pleasure, such a such an honour in a sense.
0: I'd give you some compliment as well. Like it it takes very unorthodox mature thinking to kind of have that insight that like this is what I want. I don't want the prestige. I don't want the, you know, the the wealthy network of individuals. Like I wanna get dirty. I wanna grind in the trenches. And you know that that like no you're you're I'd say a minority in that. And like props to you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that. I think you're right in the sense of the trenches. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be like, just I don't know, just the prestige. You're right. The prestige isn't what's important. I think it's what you learn from it. So I, maybe I would hundred percent agree. Like my physics knowledge probably took a hit for it, because I couldn't focus on pure theory as much, because I couldn't like just sit and read papers all the time. 'Cause I'm spending half my time with my head in a soldering iron and a cryostat trying to wire it up, things like that. And for some people they don't want that. And that's fine. That's 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 there's different ways of going around this. They're completely different ways of going around this. It depends what you want. For me that's what I wanted. And I've nothing against people who wanna just who want not even just wanna turn up, smash it, get data, publish some great papers, all that stuff. That's fine. That for me that didn't bother me as much.
0: Well, I guess now you're better off, now that you're doing entrepreneurship, right? Um, Like, I feel like that's such an asterisk to your
1: name. Well, you could completely argue, and I think me taking this course, as in me taking this avenue of my life, doing that PhD, doing that zero to one research startup, got me on EF, no question. Because I used a lot of the skills I learned there to p- persuade them to let me on, and they were like, "Yeah, this 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 is a type of guy we na- we want." And so I think if I'd have done a different type of PhD, I wouldn't have gotten an EF. Mm, okay, that makes a lot of sense.
0: What? Well, um, tell me more about what you were doing at Entrepreneur First for the past couple of months. Like, what what gaps have you seen um, in in? that you could apply your knowledge of quantum physics, you know, condensed matter, um, compute.
1: So originally, as you know, Dimitri, great guy. Shout out to Dimitri. Dimitri Sakaras. Sakaras is a fantastic man, so driven, pushed me phenomenally well, all praise to him. Genuinely, really, really enjoyed working with him for the six, seven weeks we were working together. It was a lot of fun. We really wanted to try and use both of our knowledge because he's done a similar PhD. To try and help alleviate the chip, um, the integrated circuit chip, like in your phone and your computer, um, there's electronic vehicles, all these issues. Now there are huge, huge lead times on these components. We wanted to see how we could use our knowledge to try and plug those gaps, because we we're like we're both condensed matter physicists, so surely somewhere, right, we've got the knowledge, we've got the the get go to do this the issue was so we had a few ideas how to fix this problem one of them was make the equipment used to develop and produce integrated circuits uh, so for example like the intel i7 whatever they need very 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 expensive equipment made by one company it was asm asml or something
0: or- TMSC?
1: So TSMC, they make the equipment. They make the chips. Right. But they don't make the equipment that makes them. All right. Okay. They just make them. So they need to get the equipment to make them from someone else, which is a company called ASML. All
0: right. Where are they based?
1: They're based... I can't even remember. Are they Taiwanese, Taiwanese as well? Either way, they ASML if my memory is correct produce all the lithography equipment like the to make the miniaturized circuits for like TSMC for Intel other companies right they're the only people and they make like 10 of these a year it's mad and they're worth like 300 million a pop right so we were like should we try and undercut them it's healthy (laughs) competition We were like, "Can we try and undercut these people?" And it became, we we got some really good conversations actually with some big players, some big companies. I got a conversation with um, what's called Arm. Arm, we had one with Arm, we ha- which is a big company in the UK. Um, oh, it forgets me. I, it, I can't remember now. But there's big some big companies we spoke with. But it just became very clear that it was too monopolized and that um, the capital needed is mental. So like what in EF we're talking like 80K IC.
0: Arguably that money is not to make the, it's for you to survive until the next venture round, which will get you to like many millions.
1: True, true. But we're talking me and Dimitri would have needed approaching billions <laughs> right yeah right. if we were to go down that route so then we were like right let's switch things up let's try and go down um different like making memory more sustainable like computer mem- mram um stt ram things like that let's try and use different materials in mram where we can um like carbon based things but then we've i figured out and the C- it being a CTO I kind of figured out that the, the physics didn't make as much sense and that people aren't as bothered about sustainability or it's about performance of course. so we had some big conversations with some some big spinouts and not, not that on the head so we tried we tried we tried to fix the uh, current issues in computer technology but you know, I think what I've gleaned from this is that it's you need to incentivize the big players to do it. It's not for startups to do this. This is such a legacy industry, which you might understand from defense. Like You've got the big players that own everything. Yeah. It's difficult to really be disruptive in this area it's not a fluid area it's not an area where like because the amount of capital needed to jump in is just ridiculous so it's like if you want to be disruptive on that level we want it to be it and then it was like so to so then we were like okay let's move away from our intersectional skills like skill sets let's move away a little bit from them And, but then it was, then it fell apart.
0: It's unfortunate. It's um, something that was mentioned before in the previous podcast about, like, people underestimate where all electronics in the world come from. It's crazy. Like. It's crazy. Taiwan.
1: It is mental.
0: The, it's like, look around your room right now. Mm. Everything that performs calculations was at one point made in Taiwan. Literally. And there is no way around it. No way around it. No, like, you know, let's say there is some sort of political issue in Taiwan. That, Like, let's say that city, let's say on a statistical anomaly that a hundred employees don't make it to the office in Taiwan, the entire world's infrastructure
1: of semiconductors falls apart. It's madness. And over the six weeks... It was just. This was one of the issues we wanted to address: was the fragility of the geopolitical system, and it's like, how do we move away from that? Arguably, one answer is onshoring, bringing production back to the UK. But the levels, of... Taiwan was so smart. Taiwan, in I think it was in the eighties or the nineties, they figured out that semiconductors were going to run everything, and they just invested. Like, motherfuckers. They literally were just like, this is ours. This is ours to keep now. Genuinely, they were like, this is going to blow up. This is going to be the future of the world. And Taiwan was just like, we're going to be the people to do it. And they just invested crazy amounts. And now they own it. They literally, I think it's like 70 or 80% of chips that you see in this room now were produced in Taiwan. Of like the high functioning ones. Not just the standard logic stuff, but like of stuff that does proper like in your computer right now in half in my phone in your phone all of those things have come from taiwan it's mental it's absolutely mental and that is why as well do you know you know the u.s have 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 an agreement well i don't know if it's a written agreement but i've said openly haven't they if china the moment china puts boots in taiwan they're putting boots in taiwan like they're putting soldiers in taiwan the moment china does why because it that is, an extension, that is an existential threat to the US. The moment China takes over Taiwan, that is an existential threat to the US, as in a serious threat, because the US will stop functioning.
0: It's, it's so funny how that is made purely from, I mean, obviously the capital, the physical stuff that needs to make it, but silicon is gold, right? Like if oh you look God. at yeah. the chip itself, costs nothing it's the most abundant material in the world but we're fighting it if it was like uranium or something like the most rare thing in the world it's so abundant We just we don't know how to make it exactly
1: and that's the so that's one thing me and Dimitri realized was that um the UK is fantastic and world-leading at designing chips like
0: the arm right yeah
1: it's yeah the, exactly but the,
0: they don't sell chips they show, sell designs and Intellectual
1: yeah, property, design, exactly IP, exactly IP, intellectual property. We are world leaders at IP. That's what. That's where we are the best. But creating them, we're useless. Like we've got two. We've got one in Dublin, I think. And we've got we've got some stuff in Swansea as well, but it doesn't fulfil it. Like I mean, just look at the lead times on electronic vehicles right now. It's crazy. It's crazy, but yeah. I mean, so the some of the next wars are probably going to be over semiconductor. <laughs> Put it that way.
0: Yeah, that, that's, I, that's pretty interesting. Huh? No, I
1: genuinely think it, like it runs the world. Like the world is only getting more technologically advanced. Everything is data driven. Everything is semiconductor driven. Like, I mean, just think about it now. Like back in the day, you'd, you do like look over there. You got an air fryer.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it probably runs actually like a, a very potent like ARM chip, like an ARM. No, B- genuinely, it will do. It like hundred
1: percent will, and and so will your microwave, and so will your fridge. <laughs> like
0: yeah. they they run full operating systems on those.
1: I mean, you can connect these things to bloody into Wi Fi now. Yeah. It's money. You could probably connect that air fryer to Wi Fi. I assume. <laughs> yeah, you probably can't. It's it's madness. Like we're we're, we're talking that semiconductors are just become so assimilated into everyday life that we're not going to be able to move away from it we're really not and so who holds the cards do you almost see
0: um if we didn't have let's say taiwan um was not a place that that would lead to like a collapse of civilization because we we oh, did, don't know question. like let's go there like what like what would that lead to? I don't know if I'm
1: qualified enough to talk, to give you a, like a, 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 an insightful answer, but I would say at the moment with Taiwan owning such a massive amount of the semiconductor market, that there would be serious, serious repercussions to everyday life. Don't get me, like, we're in a, we're in a, in a world now where innovation is rapid, where people move in quickly. But, and say something, say China did did jump in on Taiwan. I imagine that the Taiwanese companies and government would just offshore very quickly. They would very quickly take all of their IP, they take everything they know, and they would have and they would be backed by U.S. They'd be backed by the West. They wouldn't. They would be backed very well. They would they, they, they'd be looked after. And those people who run those factories would go say somewhere where there's also cheap labor. I don't know, say Pakistan or Middle East or whatever. And they would set up. They would set up production there. I think would happen. And they'd be backed by the West. They'd have to be. It's in the West. It's in the. It's an existential threat to the West like they, you couldn't just let them die and 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 they would be like the last chopper of saigon you know what i mean they would the people who run those factories who have all the ip who know how those factories work who know what's mach- what machines are used who know who have all the transcripts all the blueprints all of these things they'd be off the, they'd be on the first chopper out of saigon they would be they'd be going to where's next the us would be setting them up pumping billions into them. I would put money on that happening. The the US, the UK, the EU would just be like throwing money at them, make a new foundry. We're fucked without you. But there would be a big issue. No question. But I think the West would back them to the hill. They can't can't not.
0: Um, How do you think um, similar things were said about, for example, uh, we had French people on last time and they said, there is now a dip in let's say the french uh nuclear industry okay. because the fact that the nuclear reactors the buildings were built in the previous century and people who have built them have retired now and the new generation actually doesn't know how to maintain the equipment mm. there is a drought like they go into like ai machine learning they go into like what's more, much hotter industry so now it's like actually. A uh, bit of a, a drought in physicists who know how to operate these mm. buildings, so it's like actually a um, countrywide problem. But how do you fix that for semiconductors in the UK? Like, how do you see if you had, let's say, apart from just having billions invested into it, how do you how do you solve the the, the know how uh, gap of how to make because the silicon at the end of the day it's such a commodity like you could buy silicon in tons, but that one chip that weighs like two grams runs the world. Like, isn't it so interesting? Like, how would you fix that?
1: That's I think you're asking the wrong person, but I think, like I say, in the UK, the UK is so strong with IP. Like that's our strength is IP. So I imagine, and we do have fabrication people here. I mean, we, we would, we would have, we'd probably have to ship them out from Taiwan. We'd probably have to save them. Oh, yeah? We'd have to ship them out.
0: Just talk to the person, right? Like- to be
1: fair, the thing is China are are producing a lot of chips. They really are. They're like, China are smashing it as well. But the issue is with China, the level of production isn't as high. So you're not getting as high quality because you've not got that legacy. They came to the game later. And so you're actually finding that like, I've got this experience through my granddad. My granddad has an ele- had an electronics company. He had it recently where he bought like a thousand, a thousand of these certain chips in these, um, I forget what the picks. They, they, they're not very high levels things. They just like run GPS systems and stuff. They're not like the Intel that's in there or whatever. But he was like, they bought like a thousand or something and every one of them was duff. That does work? Yeah like a thousand of them Um, and they tested them sent them to another place got them tested at a different place didn't work rang up the guy in China was like your chips don't work the guy in China was like let me get back to you tested all of the chips he had in China they didn't work (laughs) so there are different levels to the game there are different levels to the game like speed can help sometimes but when it comes to things like his quality is just so 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 essential like you, you you like on these things you've got to be working on, like if you've got a billion transistors, you have to have like less than a hundredth of a percent, a millionth of a percent or something silly um, fail rate. Like they have tests in, they have like in in that chip that you've got in my phone, your computer, there will be certain amount of transistors that don't work in that integrated circuit. But they've already, the way they've set it up is that it's already counts for them. So when you have a certain amount of fail rates of internal transistors, then it stops working properly. Right, right, okay. Because the idea that you're going to have 100% success in everything, physics, is not true. You have to make account for the fact that there's going to be failures. There's always going to be failures. And we're talking about like nanometer
0: issues, right? Like quantum issues.
1: Seven nanometers, something silly now. We're trying to get down to four too.
0: It was... um... One of the guys I want to get on in our cohort was working for Apple, and I was just talking about how like, a, a fun, yeah, a, a hairline. He's, He's a really good guy. I really want to get him on. He's an awesome guy. I love him. Um, uh, a hairline scratch on a battery on an Apple phone mm-hmm. makes it over time swell like twenty centimeters, it's something crazy. Like yeah. it, like the, the hairline over time, that hairline scratch on the surface of the battery will cause it to like swell in time. And that's what happens to like Samsung phones. Yeah. That like blow up is because of like tiny, tiny imperfections. Yeah. And you think, well, a phone, a smartphone is a commodity, right? Everyone has a smartphone. Why are these, why are these Samsung's blowing up? Like we should be. Is that what it is? Well, one of the reasons like that it swells up is because of physical imperfections that, that, you know, companies have a procedure for testing, right? So the the level of precision, like you you take it for granted, it works, right? This complex thing, but in reality, buy it. you expect it to work. Yeah, exactly. But it's, we're talking about such levels of precision that, you know, only an island on earth knows how to do.
1: Yeah. No, it's madness. It's absolute madness. And so that's, that's what kind of, when you say it like that, that's what kind of led me away from the semiconductor thing because i was like if i want to get into this world i probably need a good five ten years in the trenches working in the foundries making those links getting involved like knowing it back to front front to back um you get what i mean like really hands-on so i think that's how you've got to approach that problem not all problems, but that problem it is my belief after working in this space. Ooh.
0: You are listening to the XOR.
1: Human conversations at the frontier of technology.
0: This is the XOR. The XOR.
1: The XOR. The XOR.
0: The XOR. The XOR.
1: XOR. So I, I grew up in a Christian household. Um my my dad is a devout Christian. My grandma is. Um and I went to church up until the age of fourteen. Went to church every week. But I had issues with it from the age of nine, ten. Like Wait. steep issues with religion. What type of uh, Christianity was it in the UK? So my my dad's and my my grandma, they go to and my mum as well, but not as much. Um they are like an the way you'd describe it is not Catholic or Protestant, it's like evangelical, which is more like there's not as much dogma that like, they just read the normal Bible and they just have a relationship with God, whatever. There's not like ceremony and pomp and like they do tithe and they do every month they do um what's called where you eat the bread and all that, um, communion and all that stuff. But that's that's it. It's like it's more community, if anything. Like the amount of time my grandma gives to the community is mental. Like she feeds the homeless three times a week. Like the church of just installed showers for the for the homeless people. You know, but that's what like, they're very interfaith based as well. Like they do lots of stuff with local mosques, local synagogues. It's very just. It's more to me. It seems more like more the community than anything. But the Christian and they believe in Jesus and the Bible and stuff. But yeah, when I was. For me, mate, yeah, so I went to church from being born and I went every single week till I was 14. And I remember there's like a few there's a few like big events happened and one of the biggest ones was I was like 9 or 10 years old right. And I used to sometimes if my dad was up because my dad used to work in A&E in that accident emergency in in our local hospital. So some Sundays he couldn't take me to church but my mum would be working as well. So I stay at my grandma's and she drop me off at church. Well, she'd take me to church. And I remember whenever I stayed at my grandma's as a kid, she would always have books for us to read at night. And so usually they would be like the Dandy or the Beano, you know, like comics. But sometimes there'd be like a few science books there that she'd just get from the charity shop or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I read this one about the solar system, right? I remember reading it, reading, reading this book at night in bed before church and I was like, um, and it was like on about the it's on about the, our sun the star, the star our, that's our sun the sun that is our star, and it was talking about it, but it was like oh this is a main sequence star so because of its size and its brightness we know its life cycle so in five billion years whatever it is our sun will become a red giant it will blow up it'll start doing this oscillation thing where it gets large, small, large, small, large, small, which is due to the mass inside it and the forces of the of fusion, etc. cetera. And um, basically, we uh, within 5 billion years or whatever, our whole solar system will be eaten by the sun because it will expand so large. So I read this book and I was like, oh, that's so interesting. As a kid, I was like 10 years old or whatever. I remember going to church the next day And our Sunday school um, teacher, what's it called? Mr. Smith, he actually called Mr. Smith as well. Um, He um, was like talking about the end of the earth for some reason to 10 year old kids. And And he was like, it's gonna end because of whatever it is, the apocalypse, whatever. And I was like, Kev? isn't it going to end because the earth, the sun's going to swell so large that it eats the earth? <laughs> and he just turned around and went, that's wrong. I was like, but I read it in a science book last night, and he was like, that's wrong. And I was like, how can he say that? In my head, I was like 10 or whatever. I was like, I was so perplexed. I was like, how can this religious teacher just, turn around and dismiss the science that i've read Hmm. i was like how i was like that doesn't make any sense and it started to crumble after that and i was like it didn't make sense so then when i got to be like 14 i'd already figured out i really didn't believe in any of it and i was like it just doesn't make sense i was like none of this makes sense it just it just makes i was like how can you talk to god as a kid right here we go as a kid i used to I, I remember, I used to pray every night that I wouldn't have nightmares. Right. I used to pray, I'd be like, oh, thank you Lord Jesus, blah, 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 please don't let me have nightmares tonight. Don't have a nightmare. Yeah, don't right. have a nightmare. I pray to not have nightmares. Right. Every night I'd pray, as a kid, I'd be like, oh, I'll pray not to have nightmares. And I would be really worried that if I didn't pray, I would not I would have a nightmare. Because I used to have nightmares as a kid. Then one night I forgot to pray. I didn't have a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> So all of these things added up. So wait a minute. I was like, wait a minute. So anyway, so I left church when I was 14. Because so I was like, I was just like with my dad. I was like, I don't believe any of this. I don't. And he's like, you've got to go to church. I was like, I'm not going to church anymore. I don't want to go to church. He's like, made me go till I was 14, 15, whatever. I was like, no, no, no. Anyway, then when I got to like 17, 18, I really, really started researching atheism. Like, have you heard of Christopher Hitchens? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I used to be like a Hitchens fanboy. It was embarrassing. I, I used to like... A, any Hitchens video on YouTube, I've watched it. All right. I'm, I'm not even lying. I've probably watched two, three hundred hours worth of Hitchens stuff. It's passed away now, right? Yeah, yeah. I That was one of my... I used to be like gutted that he was dead. I used to be like, I can't believe you're dead. Why, why are you dead? <laughs> mm-hmm. I was obsessed. Like him, Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss... All of these people, like big atheists. I used to be like humanists, whatever you're going to call them. Do you watch a lot of the debates that they have? I, I love the debates. That was uh, the thing, though. I loved the religion versus atheism debates. That's what That was the main things I would watch. I wouldn't just watch monologues. I didn't want to listen to the monologues as much because with the monologues, you don't learn as much because you don't learn how to counteract an argument. With the monologue, you learn what you want to hear. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's fine for someone to speak to a camera for an hour without pushback. Whereas when you have a fierce debate where it means a lot to people, especially like, have you ever watched the um, IQ squared, the um, intelligence squared one, where it's like uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Stephen Fry, and then it's, uh, they're they're debating and someone else debating um, like an archbishop and- I must've seen um, it. Yeah, 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 it's quite popular videos on YouTube. Yeah, what's she called the MP, um, the old MP, what's she called? For the Tories, and then she became a, like a anti-Brexit MEP. <sighs> I forgot what you called. Uh, her name will come back to me. Old woman. Anyway, it, it, I used to love those debates because it's just like, you get such a, you can, it makes you bolster your own argument. So, and as well, luckily, my dad being a strong Christian, but being a very, very um, open and honest man, like I really explored this with him, and so at the beginning I had all I'd watch all these debates, and we I would debate him and I'd thrash him, and it'd be like he'd literally be on the back foot the whole time. I'd just be slaying into Christianity, all of these things. I used to be almost like militant atheist. I used to be like anti-religion almost. I was oh, like yeah. I was like I used to I used to be like it's the root of all evil. All this, you know what I mean? I was like religion ruins everything. X Y Z. And then the more I got talking with my dad and he was just so open to admitting when he didn't know like I'd grill him about something wrong with Christianity I'd be like, "How can you stand like having gay friends yourself like my my dad was one of the f- first people that was like ever showed me like being gay wasn't wrong like as a, when I was a kid I remember he had a he worked with someone who was gay and he was like said that he worked with someone in a and he was gay or something. And I was like, oh, but your colleague is gay. I must've been like eight or something. And my dad just turned around and went, and? So what? But that was back in the day, in the early millennium, when being gay was like, not okay, 20 years ago. You know, like 20 years ago in the UK, it wasn't like, not nah, now. Being gay was still like a thing you could, like, is was acceptable to discriminate. I remember saying to him, like, oh, but your mate's gay I and mean, whatever. He was like, and so what? So anyway, so I would grill him about all these issues with homosexuality in the church and how repressive it was and all these things. And he was like, originally he was always on the back foot. And then he like took some time to 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 research and really dig into the the meta of religion, you know, really like I was like, you can't rely on the Bible anymore, Dad, because the Bible's fucked. I was like, read the Bible. It's fucked. I was like, it's just so bad. I was like, there's so many awful things in the Bible. It's just not defensible. And then he kind of like took it more to the theological argument. He took it more to the, you know, the like the the theological philosophical argument of God and stuff. And 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 he taught me like how to just, in a sense, without doing it on purpose, he taught me how to not be anti-religious. How to like realize that if everyone thought the same, it'd be fucking boring. Like, and that's why now I'm I'm not anti-religion at all. I wouldn't say I'm pro-religion, but I'm not, I would I would hate for there to be no religion because I think the world would I think the humans will find something different. We'll always find something to align to. It's just human nature to want to believe in something. So if you oh, okay, and you're
0: journey researching these things. Have you ever considered other religions? Let's say Buddhism or Taoism that was more to do with, you know, I I would say it's more spiritual than, um, religious. Um, have you ever had inclinations to like that sort of a lot of people who are atheists kind of find maybe they don't, the Christianity is not for them, but other religions, you know, are more
1: acceptable to them. I think that's a good question, and and like, and I'll and I'll be honest, no, and there's there's a, there's a reason why. So, in my journey into like f- figuring out, because in figuring out like religion, what does mean? What is it? Does it does it make sense? Just truth wise and science wise? Because every being scientists, we know everything is run by science. Every single thing is run by science. That's everything. Like nothing exists without science. That's just the way it's, you can't get around that. It runs the entire universe, especially physics. And so spirituality also does tie into Christianity in some ways, because in in Christianity, like you you believe you can connect with a higher being. In this sense, it's more visceral. It's more like you can talk to this higher being. You have a relationship with this higher being, but even with spirituality, you are connected to something that's bigger than yourself. And so, this might sound a bit wishy-washy, but the way, the way, the way I, for me, one of the big realizations, and it might sound trivial to some people, but when people say they can talk to God, which is a spiritual, a spiritual endeavor. We know, I did, I did a, a module <laughs> called uh, quantum information. And information, any type, is physical. So I'm sending you information right this second with my voice. My vocal cords are vibrating air, which is sending a wave to you, which your ears pick up. That is a piece of information. When I text you, my phone sends photons, which are light, but a different type of light to a satellite, which beams it back down to your phone. They're photons, they are measurable things. You get the text, that's information, yeah? Information is in different ways, many different ways, but it's always physical, always, always physical. So why am I saying this? Because if you're trying to connect to a higher being, if you're trying to speak to a higher being, that means you're sending information. There's no way you can talk without sending information. So, when people say they spoke to God, that means they're hearing God in their head. That means they're connecting with God on some level, yeah? Mm -hmm. You can't do that without a particle. There's no way, because no information can be sent otherwise. Feelings, Feelings aren't feelings. Feelings are actual atoms in your brain. When you have a thought in your head, it's not nothing. It's electrons. It's it's chemicals firing in your synapses. It's electrons moving around the nerves. It is a physical, tangible thing that if you wanted to, you could weigh. It would have a mass. It'd be very small. But it's a real, real particle. It's a thing, an actual, measurable thing. So this idea for me, I can't get my head around. Is that so people? Are, oh, I spoke to God last night. Well, How did they send you information? Did they speak and vibrate air? Because then they would have to be near you, and you'd know. Or did they send photons to you via text, but your brain accepted them and then turned that into a message?
0: So you're saying, um, you know, if if you did communicate, there would be information passed, and if there was, we'd be able to measure it. um... That's the only way. And then basically you're saying because we can't measure it, it didn't happen. Is that, is that yeah, what you're saying? That's leading? exactly what I'm saying. All right.
1: Because where in your brain is there a receiver for this information? Where's the hardware that accepts it? It's like the idea of people saying like, this is why I don't believe in souls either. Because if we had a soul, the anatomy of the human body is very well known. A soul has to be a real thing. It has to be a real entity. It has to be particles to exist. It has to be matter to exist, else it doesn't exist, else it's a vacuum. So if we had a soul, we'd know where it come from. Does it, is it excreted by your thyroid gland? Is it? Is it from your armpit? Where's it? Where does it reside? Is it in your brain? The brain's pretty well researched now. We've got MRIs. We should know if we, we'd know where it sits in the brain. Hmm. So for me, this is what made me realize that I don't believe in any religion. There isn't a spirituality, there isn't a soul. But I realize that that's a beauty. There's a beauty to that, because do we think our cats have souls? Do we think that the beetles, the one million species of beetles have souls? Do we think that zebras or hippopotamus, hippopotami, whatever have souls? No, we don't. We just think because we're sentient. And conscious beings we've got them but no we're just part of the natural order some
0: religions would probably disagree that you know these animals have <laughs> souls as well. but okay i see i see where you're going with this do you think there could be something that's immeasurable or space for
1: faith of that something that we haven't discovered yet so i think that people can make an argument that there's a particle we haven't discovered yet But the the fact still stands. Information is measurable. Information is a particle, always, because if you don't have a particle, you have a vacuum. If you have a vacuum, you have nothing. You can't have something without. You can't have something without nothing. Without like you just. Okay. Do you get what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's say, let's say there was the communication was with photons, and they did there did exist. a being that was communicating, it's just that it's so infinitesimal; it's just not measurable with current equipment. Would you kind of accept that thought? It's like the communication does happen. You could measure it, but like you just can't at the stage of your like scientific breakthrough.
1: To be fair, some people, from what I've the what the spiel I've just given, some people are very arrogant, very um narrow-minded, and I understand. Like some people have theories about twin telepathy and all these things, and I still, the, the, I speak to myself in my own head. That's my conscience. That's what it is. All right. Okay. And I have nothing against it. If people want to say that they spoke to God, that's fine. I have nothing against that. I don't think they have. I really don't think they have. But if they want, and I, I, but I won't argue with them because who am I to deny that? I have nothing against it. I just don't think they are. Do you believe in anything
0: that's... Like, is there any space for mysticism? Or um, some sort of um, phenomena that are unexplainable that Mm -hmm. happen? I
1: mean, no. No, because again, like, the ghost thing... Ghosts have to be particles, again. They have to be made of something. They aren't... Everything has to be made of something. It has to be. There's no way around it. Okay, right. It just has to be. There's no other way of looking at it. Like, if something happens, it can't be nothing. It has to be a physical. Whether it be a few atoms in a weird arrangement, yeah. But it has to be. If that makes sense. Yeah, I understand the line of thought for sure. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> I spent, yeah, yeah. But yeah. these realizations occurred <laughs> during my prepared. during my during my masters and stuff during my during my physics um, undergraduate. And I actually had a very good conversation with a Sikh who was in my uh, cohort at Leeds. I had a very good conversation with him actually because I asked him this question. I was like, I said to him, I was like, me and you are in the same classes. We've both done particle physics together. We know that everything is made from particles, everything. If it's not made from a particle, it's not, it doesn't exist. It's just a vacuum. So there's nothing there. If there isn't a particle there, there's nothing there. So I said to him, "Where's God in, in in Sikhism? Where is?" And I wasn't like trying to take the piss or anything. I was just, I was like really interested. I was like, "Where do you see God?" And he was like, "You remember saying he was like God is God is the water. God is the cup. God is this." And I was like, "The atoms of the cup." <laughs> the what? It's like the atoms of the cup. He was like, "God is the water. God is the water in this cup. God is the God is the cup. God is you know God is this. God is everything." Right, okay. So I was like unscientific I was just like I was like everything has to be rooted in science everything it has to be because that is the order of the world that is the order of the universe if it's not rooted in science it's not it's it's nothing are there some sort of uh, neo-religions
0: that are like transhuman and just sort of they're like based on quantum physics but then accept the universe as being like a higher organism therefore they is there anything like that? So the
1: only argument I think you can make is not... So I'm arguing against a theist position. A theist a, a theist is someone who believes that you can interact with God. God orders the world, the universe, God. So when things happen, God is that part of their plan. The deist position is that God set the universe in motion and let it run. God made the laws of physics and let them run and doesn't intervene. I think you commit there is an argument for that. Mm, okay. But that would agree with my argument in that God doesn't speak to you because God has set the universe in motion, has set the laws of physics in motion, has left it as it is. They've done it from the beginning, but they don't touch it after. You can make that argument. You cannot make a theist argument, I don't think.
0: All right, so let's go into the deist then. Okay, so you could accept a position where there were like gods, god or multiple gods. They kind of set set the wheel in motion, and you can't communicate with them. Yeah, is, I, that, is I, that fine? How would case? you
1: prove against that, though? The only reason, the only reason I think that you can make that argument is because you can't prove against it. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's the only reason I, I would. I think you can argue for the deist position, but not the theist position. Um, but again, like I'm not trying to slate religion. This has just come from my physics masters and my PhD and just living and breathing the fabric of like learning what the fabric of the universe is and what makes no question there's still discoveries to be made like antimatter, things like negative energy, etc. No question. Like we still got hurdles to jump, but I think with the amount of scientific evidence we already have, I think it's quite concrete that there isn't a God that There there isn't a God that is involved in our lives that makes choices, that has a plan for us, that puts their hand in to stop events or make events happen. Like I remember when I got hit by a car when I was like 13 or whatever. I got absolutely twatted by this car. Didn't break a bone luckily somehow. So I'm a mate's dad's bicycle as well. So I fucked his bike up and I got absolutely... Twatted by this car like thirty miles an hour went fucking flying. Didn't break a bone. I remember grandma, my grandma saying to me, "Someone was looking out for you tonight. God was looking out for you." I remember like later on being like, "He was fucking looking after me. He wouldn't let me. (laughs) He wouldn't have let it happen." (laughs) You know what I mean? I was like, "He was looking after me. Wouldn't get fucking hit by the car, would I?" (laughs) That was her way of being lovely, and I I love my grandma to bits. I'm very close with my grandma, but yeah, I remember, t- I, I completely remember thinking, yeah. But to this day, let's
0: say your family kind of sticks to faith and kind of, yeah, yeah you do your thing, like that's you. There is maybe a bit of, um, uh, what's that word? Um, where even though people know that their arguments are not strong, they are. Using it like they're they see the benefits of faith, and it's like yeah, it helps me. No question. What's what's there's a word for that. um So they're like accepting of maybe the illogical aspect of what they're doing, but they're like you know what prayer helps me like run my
1: run my the course of my day, feel much better when I do. No question. I have no issue with that because you can say the same about me when I meditate on a daily basis. It's just a different form of meditation, surely.
0: It's just, so when you meditate you don't see it as spiritual you just see it as spiritual. i do it
1: for mental health and i do it just for peace of mind and to be comfortable in my own brain you can argue that, that when people pray daily they're doing the same thing how is that different to me meditating i don't think it is different i think it's just another form their form of meditation is speaking to a god that calms them my med- my meditation is sitting down for five minutes in the morning, and breathing exercises. It's the same thing, but they have a religious spin on it, which is fine. I and I have nothing against it. Genuine, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, it's fine. Hmm. I think that I think that's what people could argue against me. Is you meditate? This is my meditation, and I and I should say, absolutely, and you're welcome to it. And I and I wouldn't want you to stop. on my God, ever
0: so it's interesting that your dad kind of keeps um his view also like he he's a medical doctor right so We've like had some
1: good conversations about this
0: so like your okay your quantum physics phd your dad is also has to learn the anatomy right like he's a doctor he saves lives every day so every single day yeah like he he is a scientist literally literally I've asked him this question. The question you're going to ask. (laughs) Um, How does he square it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I've said this to him. I said this. I was like, dad, how do you square the fact that you save lives every day? Like, who's who's saving lives? As in, I said to to him a few years ago back now, I was like, is it God that's giving you this information, not science? This was when I was in my like, not aggressive, but my heavy atheist days when I was like, Screw religion. Atheism's the only way. You know, what I mean, and I was and I was like, I was like, Dad, you've dedicated your life to medicine. You've dedicated your life to saving lives through your own knowledge. Like, you're the reason people are alive, not God. I was like, you were the one saving lives, not God. Because that's what sometimes used to piss me off when I was like really heavy atheist. I used to be like, how can people thank God before they thank the surgeons? How can you know what I mean? Like someone's had a big surgery and they'll go, Oh, praise to God. You know what I mean? All this stuff. They're like, oh, first I've got to thank God for keeping me alive. It's like, no. I used to be like, no, fucking thank the surgeons and the nurses and the anaesthetists, you know, and the you know what I mean? And and the people who have fucking put the balls on the line to save you. I used to get really angry about it. I don't know why, because it didn't affect angsty, me. Angsty at the yeah, previous stage. Yeah. yeah, I was angsty in my beliefs. And um, and I remember saying to him, I was like, Dad, you're the one saving lives. How do you square this? You're the one saving lives. And I think the way he's, if I remember correctly, the way he saw it is like, his religion is, religion is like, he is part, his religion is him. He is his religion. So whatever he does is like, his religion is part of that. In a sense. So,
0: he y- 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 rationalize it that you know God put me here, and God
1: exactly, yeah, yeah. Like he like, is who he is. He has gone down the path he do. He has. He saves lives every day, and partly part of the reason of that is because of his religion. Yeah. So, so he So for me, I could say, yeah, you could have done. Look at all your atheist friends you work with, but it does not matter. That's not the point, is it? The point is, is that for him, he did. He is religious. And for him, arguably, he—that's why he is where he is. So, for me, he's the least—he's the least—and he'll kill me if he sees this. But he is the least Christian Christian you've ever met, just because of how forward-thinking he, he is, how how um, just human, and how thoughtful and. I'm not saying religious people aren't aren't like this, but he's the least dogmatic person you've ever met in your life. So forward thinking, he's so accepting of other people, which I would argue religion often isn't. I would really argue all religions really aren't accepting of other people on the whole, on the whole, like, especially the Abrahamic religions, (laughs) especially Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they're not very accepting of each other or other people like it's their way out the highway people argue different with me and and if if they do let's have another podcast and talk about that on its own because i love i i I love chatting with this like i love i would love to like chat with some heavy faith based people and just shoot the shit and just like just chat with them and explore things and like, cause I mean, look, just before when we were talking about the communism stuff, that gave me some perspective that I'd never seen before. And like, I love, I love hearing opposing opinions. Let's opinion do it. Stuff. I'll be the moderator. Yeah, let's I'll do it. If some... you can get some faith-based people in, uh, I would love to just shoot the shit with them and just chat and just be honest and open and no holds barred. And we just, yeah. you know. Yeah, we'll we do, from...
0: we'll do preparation, but you, you definitely are a black belt. You've you come prepared. I'm like <laughs> just nodding and be like, okay, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Tell me more about like your dad's career. Cause, um that was really interesting when you told me before about like what it takes to be someone who is at the forefront of like horrible, horrible situations during accidents.
1: Oh my God. My, my dad is, my dad's my hero. I'm, I used to cringe at the, th- like my dad's has always called his his hero and I used to cringe at, oh, your dad's your hero. That's not cool. And then, do you know what it was? Just to go off on a tangent. Have you ever watched um, Fred Gino and um, Ramsey go abroad? No, I didn't watch that. But that but anyway, Fred, you know, from First Days. And they're both cooks, right? And Fred he's a, a maitre d'. Fred, Fred, uh, Fred's the major d'. French. Right. And anyway, he said it on TV. He was like, my dad's my hero. And I was like, my dad's my hero? I was like, fuck. Ah. Anyway, so... Yeah, my dad. I ever so when I was when I was when I was born, when I was a kid, my dad worked as a as just as a clerk in a clerk in the courts, very low paid job. It was me, mum, dad, um, and my little brother at the um, before he got his before he became a nurse and lived in a two up two down in Manchester in one of the roughest areas of Manchester. We had nothing, poor, so poor. Went to one of the worst schools in the area. Um, it, it was, it wasn't. It was you know. I didn't bother me though because you know, there was love in the house, so it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't feel poor. We didn't have anything, but we didn't feel poor because we were such a strong family. And um, anyway, my dad figured out like being a clerk in a court wasn't going to do anything for him. He he literally used to like hand papers from the prosecutors or the defense to the judge. That was his job. <laughs> He was that person in court. He would literally just pass papers, and it wasn't a glorified job, and it wasn't very well paid. So he was like, and, and then his his grand his grandma, my great grandma, died, um, and he was like, he saw how the hospice treated her, and he was so impressed with the care they gave her, and he's like, I need to be a nurse. And this was back in the day when men weren't nurses as well, because when I was a kid. People will be like, what, what does your dad work as? I'll be like, oh, he's a nurse. They'll be like, "Eh, your dad's a nurse. <laughs> a, a male nurse. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: the worst thing for your dad to be as a kid.
1: <laughs> Literally like, our oh, nurses, girls. My, my, dad's,
0: my dad's in the army. <laughs> your dad's ass. Exactly, yeah. was oh, a nurse. Like,
1: my dad will save your dad. Anyway, so he worked his way up. He used to be, um, he used to, so he started off pretty, pretty, um, Remember correctly. He started off working in the ear, nose, and throat ward um as like a ward nurse, and then he managed to get into A and E, accident emergency, and um he worked his way up to being charge nurse of A and E. So he ran A and E. He was the boss when he was when he was on his shift. He ran A and E, um, and you know that is, that's that's got to be a high. I get a lot of inspiration from the stories that he told me, like. Some phenomenal, phenomenal stories. He, the amount of lives he saved. The, I don't know how he's not got PTSD. Like some of the shit he's seen. Like I remember telling a story of a guy who came in, who'd been um, stabbed in the in the abdominal with a bread knife. This guy comes in with a, like white as a sheet, and he's like holding his abdomen, and he's holding his abdomen, and in. That, like has a blanket over him or something covering his abdomen and he like pulls it back and all his insides just... <laughs> his missus had stabbed him with a bread knife things like that he couldn't save that guy but then there's another one where like um this guy with a convertible had a convertible car took the top of his head off uh, like under a lorry or something like crashed it and he had his brains in his hands was talking to this guy whilst he had his brain in his hands and like he seemed like little children die and he's seen the just the worst things ever and and it, it's the fact that he like how human he is in all of it like there's a story that i always tell people and forgive me dad if you didn't want me to tell this story but this is one of the proudest stories i ever tell people about you and i never stopped telling it because it makes me so proud um the story of a little girl who um, a mother had done a paddling pool for her in the summer, and she a mum the mum just went out for sixty seconds to get some drinks, come back and the daughter's dead in the pool, drowned. And they get her to the hospital. My dad performs uh, resuscitation. This girl's dead though. Keeps her alive long enough to um, to die in her mum's arms, so that. She didn't die on the table, and so that she could die with a mum holding her. And in that time, my dad had the forethought and the humanity to go and get an ink pad and press her um, hands and feet onto the ink pad, and then write like "Mummy, I love you," so that her mum would have, in that moment, her hands and feet pressed onto paper for the rest of the for the rest of the mother's life. She died after that, obviously. She died not very long after that. Hours, I, I think. But just like, the ability to think like that. I just can't get any more inspiration from it. Like, If I end up half the man I am than my dad is, then I'll be successful in life. And that's the way I see it. But I, you could argue that, back onto the faith thing, that part of it's that. But I just think he's such a good man that yeah, it doesn't need face. Yeah, I' trying to. I feel like sometimes I'm trying to not emulate that, but I'm trying to like, I, 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 the amount of good my dad does in the community. Still, like I've been walking with my dad in the in our local sit- town, and his patients have stopped us, his local patients, and been like, "Oh, Daniel, you don't know what your dad's done for me." You know what I mean? Like, can't even go through the local town without people stopping us. Because he's that well regarded, like you see he, he just changes lives every day, and it's like I can't do that with physics. Oof, I
0: that's can't. Good, that's that's
1: interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I feel like I, the skills I've got from my PhD, I need to try and I need to use the transferable skills in like med tech or something, because I think that's where I want to be in life. Is like. I feel, I feel like I want to, I want to, I'm not saying I have to be my dad because I'll never be my dad. And I don't want to be my dad because I'm myself. But I feel like that's what my dad, like, I would get fulfillment out of. Like, I see the good he does. And to be fair, if 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 my dad sees this, he'll be cringing. he would be like, you're giving me too much credit. I don't do this. I don't do that. But he can, he just can't admit it. But that's the mark of a good man, isn't it? Someone who can't even admit when they are a force for good. Someone who can't even be like, yeah, I do good things every day. Like he won't accept that. You try and tell him that he changes lives every day. He's like, I'm just doing my job, I'm just doing my job. You don't do it for the accolade. You don't do it. Like he's the best man I've ever met in my life, ever. I, he's my best mate, like he's my hero. That is so cool. Well, like- yeah, I feel so lucky.
0: Uh, it's always inspiring, like to see, you know, fathers be great figures for their children and look up. It, it is definitely a, like, I don't know if it's rare, but it's definitely amazing when it happens. I love to see it.
1: I feel lucky every day, you know, because I know that there are lots and lots of men out there who have bad fathers or absent fathers, and I just wish that they had. I genuinely just sometimes wish like every dad was like mine. The world would be different. It would be totally different, and I do, and I am. I do like I've got friends who have got awful fathers and awful mothers, and I, like, I've not got the same relationship with my mom. Well, I love mum to bits, and, and and we get on very well now. But like, there, the I do wish that there was more. There's a, there's more of abundance of good parents. Like I've been. I didn't have anything as a kid, but it didn't matter because I had good parents. So that made up for it. Whereas I know people who grew up with nothing, but had awful parents and it affects them for the rest of life. Like you, you your upbringing is the first five years at least of your life is so fundamental. They're just so, so fundamental. And I'm and like, and I just was beyond lucky to, to have the, the, the parents i i grew up with
0: do you uh, do you see the you know the argument of nature and nurture mm. yeah what do you stand on that because i i definitely do agree that most of the grief in this world actually comes from the bad passage of parenthood right like 100%. you dig dig not even much deeper yeah. into any situation, yeah, like an awful situation. You kind of end up at like bad parenthood.
1: Hundred percent. I I, th- I couldn't agree more. Like nature versus nurture. You look at look at where I grew up. It was ugh, people are gonna see this and be like, oh my god, he grew up in the slums. I grew I grew up in a poor area. And uh, to be fair, in the first primary school I was at. A good number of them are now in prison. <laughs> oh, yeah? Genuinely, a good number of them are, are either now in prison or have been in prison. And that's not a lie. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it wasn't a good, like, place. But my parents, the nurture was what it was about, you know. I never doubted that my parents loved me, ever. My, my dad would tell me he loved me every day. Every single day he told me he loved me, even now. My phone's just gone off. It's probably a text from my dad saying, I love you. Well, that's the level of relationship we have. And that's why I feel so lucky because I've never, ever, ever thought I wasn't loved. You know, like as a kid, it used to be too much. You'd be like, oh dad, come on. And that's why I cringed when he was like, oh, my dad's my hero. And then when I was like, finally, when I watched that TV show and that famous person was like, my dad's my hero. And I was just like, my dad's my That's okay to say that, though. Yeah, no, it genuinely. Give me the. It shouldn't have took that, but it did. You know what I mean? Like a famous person on TV said that, and I was like, that barrier just was knocked down. But nurture is so important. Like I've got very, very good friends who have just not had the right nurturing, and and you just, I wish they did because they would be so much happier in themselves. I think, like. I, th- I think it all stems, a lot of it stems from where you grew up, how you grew up, sorry, like what your, na- what your, what your nurturing was. And like I keep saying that like, we didn't have anything, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter because we were just loved as kids. There's never that doubt. It's like as a kid, like I think in the primary school I went to, I am... Um, one of two people who went to university in the primary school in my year out of 30 kids I think two went to university why? why is that? because from the age of four or whatever my dad was like I didn't go to university and I made a mistake I didn't have the right guidance like my gran- my grandparents obviously love my dad I'm very close to my grandparents they did an amazing job look at my dad he's the best person alive but he didn't have that nurturing, like pushed. He wasn't pushed. Whereas my dad was like, I'm not letting that happen to you. I'm going to push you. You've been pushed. You're going to university. But it wasn't a forceful thing, though. It was like, you should go to university. I want you to go to university. But at the same time, he was like, I don't care as long as you're happy as well. So to word it better, like, he was like, the best thing for you is university if you want to get out of this life. If you want to get away from Manchester, you know what I mean. If you want to broaden your horizons, he was like, he was like, university is a great way to do that. And he was like, and I didn't have that push, and I wish I had had that push. But he was also like, as long as you're happy, I don't care. He was, he was, he used to say, you could be, you could, you could, you could do bins for like a, you could be a bin man. Not again nothing against bin man. But you know what I mean? He was like, you could work in a butcher or a fishmonger or. A be a bin man just you know what i mean something nondescript some people there's nothing nothing against butchers bin men and <laughs> fishmongers <laughs> but you know what i mean he was like you could you could do something like that and as long as you're happy it doesn't matter but he was like university is probably the best place for you so from being a kid i knew i was going to university there was never a doubt in my mind never a doubt in my mind i was going to university hmm But nurture, 100%. 100%. I think it's literally almost all about the nurture. I really think it is. Like, It has to be. It has to be. It just has to be. You see people who come from awful upbringings as in like areas in Africa that have got no money. But they've been nurtured properly, and they become so so successful. So not just successful, but happy, wealthy. They go on to change lives because they've had the right upbringing. They've had the right. They've had the right um, infrastructure around them, support system around them. I think the answer is nurture. You are listening to. The XOR. Human conversations at the frontier of technology. This is
0: the XOR. The XOR.
1: The XOR. The XOR.
0: The XOR. XOR.
1: XOR. I'm trying to think now because this is the issue I think I have is that it's the medical shit that really interests me. It's the shit where I'm like, how can you make doctors' lives easier? How can you... So like... Finger pulse detectors. Like, they're mad. They're like infrared. Do you know what they are?
0: Yeah, uh, PPGs.
1: Yeah, but do you know what they are?
0: Yeah, I I did biomedical engineering.
1: Exactly. So it's literally what? Two infrared. Two. two Infrared lights. Two LEDs. One green, one red. Yeah. And then an infrared receiver. And that's it. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. And you can get. But the thing is, you don't just get. You don't just get heart rate. What (laughs) What else do you get? You get O2 levels. Yeah, You get oxygen sass. <laughs> How? <laughs> and that's old technology, but that's mad. That's just that's just nuts. That's absolutely nuts. Like the idea of that innovation, I think, is just phenomenal. That's what like gives me a hard on to, to put it lightly.
0: Like. <laughs> <laughs> I I resonate strongly with that because I did medical engineering, and even when I did robotics, it was in the bioengineering department. So it was always technology applied to the body. And that's kind of what I went with through life. And also like, earlier, I was, it's a weird concept to try to describe to people. But I was saying that I love when technology eventually combines with the human. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that I found um, a degree in the UK. Like not many countries offer that. So there are degrees in the UK that study, uh, technologies applied to the body prosthetics. They teach you how medical devices work, how the the physics of heart rate mm. and the way electricity passes through your nerves and all of that. So that's why I know how PPGs work, how, uh, like you get brain signals, how you get heart signals, how you get many different types of, um, let's say, how do you get a brain signal to control like an artificial limb? That is insane. So I feel like I've always loved that. Uh, at the end of the day, for me, kind of technology has to end up with the human. Yeah, yeah. In one way or another. And-
1: you need a human in the loop always. Huh? You need a human in the loop, don't you? Yeah, yeah.
0: Technology is with a human in the loop. So like robotics on its own, you've kind of, let's say you create a robot platform. It's not enough. Like the platform has to be like, either integrated into the body, or somehow help the body. So I was like, for example, even surgical
1: robots. So have you seen the surgical robots? They're like these. Oh yeah, they're insane. Like the video of the, the guy performing surgery on a grape. Yeah, 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 yeah. that was a meme, <laughs> right, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: that for me is like, I don't know, a personality trait that I think we kind of share. And that, like, how do we, like, yeah, we, we know this tech. We know how it works. But it's not enough. Like it has to be somehow applied to healthcare.
1: To this is so true. And I got a really funny example of like why human. Like you've got the tech, but you need the human there always. Pretty much at the moment. It'd be, and just an example. My dad was telling me a story. He was, he was working in resuscitation once. So a guy just had a heart attack on him. He brought him back to life. Was talking to him. This guy died. He was chatting with him after it because he brought him back, having a good conversation. And this guy was ECG'd up. You know, I had fucking. All the sensors on him and my dad was talking to the guy but watching his heart on the monitor and he was talking to this guy and he noticed he'd got so you you're you go into a heart attack and you can keep talking so he was having a heart attack but talking to my dad without knowing Mm -hmm. so my dad just punched him in the chest which is called a precordial thump so he's like you get punched right in the middle you punch them to jolt the heart so he punched them hard so my dad punched this guy in the chest when he was talking to him. Because <laughs> the ECG had shown. Went into, went into cardiac arrest, but obviously it wasn't as bad because my dad had given him that precordial thump. He saves him again when this guy comes out. it's like, why the fuck did you punch me in the chest? <laughs> but that is the point of the fact that you always need the human there, don't you? Because if my dad hadn't been there to twig that he was going into another cardiac arrest... He wouldn't have been able to punch him. And then, <laughs> that's one of my favorite stories, actually, as well. <laughs> pu- punch him in the chest. He saves his life again. And then he goes, why the fuck did you punch me in the chest? <laughs> but yeah, we need, I mean, do you think we can get to a point where we have, like, fully autonomous robotic? Integration? Where you don't even need humans anymore. You just have, like, you have a robot robot. Like, you come in with the problem, robot scans you, like, you talk to the robot, it scans you, it checks your vitals, and like, fucking probes you, whatever, and then it's like, right, this person's got this, 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 and this, and then it's just like, right, let's fucking go. Just does what it needs doing.
0: Science fiction, obviously, but... Is it? it, it well, Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's always... At the moment? At one point in time for everything someone said, this is science fiction that we take its reality now. And we don't even think twice about it. Um, but I think fully end-to-end autonomous systems have never worked. They're always technologies made for humans are on a different level of success than like fully autonomous systems always. Like the best systems are the ones that improve the human, not replace the human, or like they kind of allow you to do more. That's why. Um, ah,
1: it's a very good way of thinking about.
0: It. Yeah, yeah, like even yeah,
1: help the human, not replace the human.
0: Every time, you can think of anything. Like, let's say we we think of like data science and traders, right? No autonomous trading system has made like any strides, right? It's always give me enough data so that I can make the decision. Yeah. yeah Those yeah. systems are the one that win all the time. It's the ones that in any, any endeavor, if it's formula one, a good example, let's say I worked at a company that was, I didn't work with it directly. It was like a child organization that. They were doing autonomous racing cars, right? Have you seen it's called Robo Race, okay. right? So um, they had an incredibly beautiful um, machine that they built. It was designed by this like legendary designer, and it looked insane. And inside there was like a big NVIDIA computer that was like doing trillions of calculations of like speed and velocity and like turbulence and all these things. Autonomous racing, right? think this thing goes around the track beats all the records um you know is able to go to speeds that are like not possible to sustain by a human the the g-forces or whatever yeah, right yeah. it never took off why it never like why do you think
1: because there's no human there exactly it's boring it's boring yeah. like he's watching
0: what, I mean it's like I don't want to say I feel like I'll do injustice to the people that work there and people who enjoyed watching it or like had really, um, put a lot of stakes on it. And like, it was, a, it was a big thing. We were like, <laughs> had a whole autonomous, like race car event. And it was streamed on television, like, uh, online and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's the system that improves the human. Like we watched formula one finals today, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Max Verstappen did it again. Big boy, Super Max. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, it's always the systems that improve the human because there are so many systems inside that. Like that Formula One car is not. It exists to enable Max Verstappen to drive the way he does. As soon as you try to get Verstappen out of that seat, the, the whole system breaks. Like the whole concept breaks right? Because it's not about, it's, technology is never about technology. Technology is always about the human Mm. at the end of the day. Like if you give me an example of anything, I will link it, like anything successful, I will be able to link it to a human that is enabled by it.
1: No, I think that's, I think, so I think, I think you're right in a lot of aspects there, but I think now, I don't know if I agree with it 100% because so you know Boston Dynamics look what they're doing what are they doing? they're doing these autonomous robots that can go around um, crazy and do crazy shit they're going to be able to go into burning buildings a lot better than humans are very soon
0: I would uh, push back and disagree because The best system, if we're talking about like, rescue, search and rescue, it's a huge, like in robotics, search and rescue is a huge, huge field. Uh, It's almost like a um, philosopher's stone kind of magic wand that you can always go back to. Like, let's say you found no applications of your research. You could always be like, it's gonna be useful in search and rescue. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it will be like accepted in IEEE. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) No hate on IEEE i've referenced mm. loads of your papers by the way best best <laughs> journal in the world well because they will publish anything huh? <laughs> Publish? yeah no they're like
0: different different topic but I, I think there was like a statistic on all publishers and like ieee is always at the top of like just the volume of papers that they publish anyway <clears throat> if we're talking about the functional aspects of search and rescue it will never be an autonomous system. Like, it will always be a system, the best system for search and rescue or burning buildings will always be some sort of uh, something that enables the firefighter to do a better job. It will never be an autonomous system that goes and deploys and
1: whatever. So you're saying saying there always has to be a human in the loop?
0: If, because that's the best way to do
1: things. It's like evolutionary. It will, and I think. Do you not think, though, with like the way neural networks and things are going now? And like, for example, Safwan, who you know, from EF, him and his friends went to, they did a, they tried doing a startup in Pakistan, if I remember correctly, where they automated um, chest x-rays. And the AI, the machine learning algorithm stuff that they wrote was predicting like 97% accuracy, something mental. It was like more accurate than humans. Like yeah. I understand that's only one part of the process. I understand that's only deciphering the results of a chest x-ray. I get that. But they wrote code in a few months and deployed it in, a, in Pakistan, in hospitals in Pakistan, where the results were more accurate than humans. Yeah,
0: I'm not saying um, sophisticated tools don't exist. The ones that take away a lot of human labor and skill to like be able to identify a tumor on an x-ray, but maybe, maybe I'm cheating in, in my argument that like, for example, I would say, well, that, that system exists to kind of aid the physician. No question. It's yeah. like, um, like impenetrable argument that I will always be able to kind of link it to that person, even though sometimes it wouldn't make sense to do that, but I would still say that exists for the physician. Like that tool is just enables the physicians to do a better job. It's not. And into an autonomous system.
1: Do you not know, see a future in which that code is incorporated into a larger set where the person get, just sits on a bed, presses a button, X ray occurs, it knows where to X ray. Tells the person sit on your left, sit on your right, you know what I mean? Give me a posterior and anterior image, whatever. Turns out the data, spits it out and then, and then figures out this person within seconds needs to go here and a light pops up and goes, go to, go to this place. And then that whole part of just, I know it's, I know maybe they'll have to go to another referral or they'll have to go see another doctor, but why can't that happen? And then the next step gets autonomized, gets automated and the previous step is as well. Like, what's stopping that? Okay, no, no. I'm saying,
0: well, the funny thing is, if we got the actual uh, cardiologist, or um, not cardiologist, who is uh, Dom Pimenta? He's a GP. He's a physician. He's a doctor, right? yeah. So, um, if we got him on, he would definitely say that no matter how sophisticated your like analysis, it's at the end more than just compute like yeah. it's the doctor who makes the difference here no so question even if i was to make a one button click that's only part of the process and a lot of that will be the phys like the relationship of the um the patient with the physician the trust the human aspect is the most important one and everything else is secondary so like that's that's what i
1: always will think like because i re- i remember when, so I one of the things that got me into, start, into startups was I did a startup course with a spin-out company called Spin Up Science that are based in Bristol. And what they're trying to do is, and I'll plug them now, actually, Spin Up Science with Ben Miles. Uh, check him out on LinkedIn, Spin Up Science. Really good guys. They basically, um, he, he was part of a startup that uh, was developing... Um, glu- glucose fl- fluorescence, so it's like you put a marker in the blood. Um, it binds to glucose, and then you can live track people's diabetes uh, sugar levels. So you've literally got second by second analysis of where the blood sugar levels are, which is just Im- so important for things like surgery because people go hypo on the table where the blood sugar goes too low, and that's when they get comatose. But if you don't finger prick them every ten minutes, then you know what I mean. You can't find the dips all the time. Anyway. So he was the CTO or something of them, left. They ended up exiting for like 800 mil, something sort of GSK, I think. Anyway, so he spun this company out because he was like, London's got a very good startup scene. Cambridge and Oxford had a very good startup scene, but he was like, Bristol, I was one of a few, and the North just doesn't have a startup scene. There's no startup infrastructure or ecosystem, whatever. I remember, so he came to Liverpool did this thing, it was free for me, like the uni paid for it. And it was a week long um, immersive course, but they actually give us a real life problem. It was like a a guy came to us and he was like, pro with robotics, made the first ever autonomous um, chemistry experiment in, and it was done in Liverpool where it was like, we just program it with things to do and it does it 24 hours a day. And he came being like, I've got this, inf- I can do this with robots. So give us a week. And he was like, turn something out for me at the end of the week. Like what I can do with it. And it was a, le- a week long thing. So i to that market, had to do like that like ideation, market, val- market validation. And then we had to pitch at the end. And I remember one of the things for me that I got really hell bent about was like, one of the ideas was using these robotic arms that he got very good at scripting up to do basic cooking things like you know you've seen in japan now like the omelet maker you know like it's fucking phenomenal it's madness perfect omelet every time i remember thinking to myself i was like i really pushed back on it because we were talking about like making poke or something you know can we get a robotic arm to do these things and just make it super easy and i remember thinking like i don't wanna i don't like this it's replacing a human it's replacing a human was like i don't like it that's that's someone out of a job but then I was just like, this is innovation. You can't stop innovation. Like, markets change. Think about it, the first the first person who moved from ox ox to run the plow to using a steam engine to do to plow the fields, or whatever it is, you know what I mean? An actual like combustion engine to plow the fields. I just put I put livestock out of a job. But then, the person that ran the tractor now that would take ten people to do whatever. Now they've got combine harvesters. The market always changes, doesn't it? I think I've gone away from what we were saying originally. But I was used to be like mad against the idea that like moving humans out of it is a bad idea. But I don't think you can get away from it. I think machines are more reliable than humans when you get it right. At the end
0: of the day the
1: humans will always be there
0: like that's how i see it if the human the, the most successful thing like evolution will make it so that whatever you design the human would always be there to be in the loop and those are the best systems that's always how it works the combine now instead of being like the person who carries the yoke you are now the technician for the for the ro- robotic system that carries the yoke so like it's it with time, the only thing that will stray to true, no matter how many people change industries and skill sets, the humans will always
1: be there. So here's an example then where I think very soon there might not be. Amazon uh, no, Tesco groceries. They have now automated grocery packing. So have you seen the other one in London? Forget where, forget where it is down in London. Where massive warehouse with every single item, and it's just an array of robots. Mm-hmm. I put my so the the grocery list I've got going in now to be packed tonight and sent tomorrow. Put it in online, no humans, just me. I put my order in. Yeah, that goes through the internet system, gets compiled. Whatever the warehouse in London. Packs it all using robots. The only part of the human aspect, I assume, is to check it and to drive drive the groceries to me. Hmm. Well, Amazon are working on driverless cars and driverless delivery systems soon. Surely, very soon, we're going to have a situation where um, I'll be able to order my shopping list on my phone and no humans are needed as in the only humans are going to be needed I'm just going to watch over it
0: yeah I think that's a big argument it's been brought up a lot I think there's there's a good video about it. it's called humans need not apply yes
1: humans need that's old though That yeah, that's very old that's like, like 8 years old yeah 8 years old yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a
0: it's like a long long debate and this sets us up for the next one but I just do not see that happening. I just really, with adaptation, with the way we are, with the way things work, we will always be there to kind of will will change careers. It'll be not groceries, it will be something else. Yeah. But those thousand people that got out of a job, they will be part of a system eventually, in one way or another.
1: Well, I think we're singing from the same hymn sheet then.
0: Hymn sheet. We're uh, saying
1: the same thing, in that sense, but from different angles.
0: I think we'll end it there as well. Then,
1: yeah, it's been a, been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having. We you enjoyed on. that. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone. Next
0: hour. Hope you enjoy. Zero 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 eight
1: with Doctor Daniel Bromley. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Soon.